Hi, I'm Dr. Morbaja, astrodynamicist, space environmentalist, and associate professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Gannigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization. Or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. Today's guest is Edmund Burke. He was an Air Force program manager and project director for many years before founding his own company, Space Information Laboratories, and that was back in 2004. This is interesting. We're going to be talking about Vandenberg Air Force Base, but also at Vandenberg and Cape Canaveral. Uh, Edmund was the Spacelift Range System, Range Instrumentation, and Metric Track Lead for both those places. So he knows a lot about uh, design of launch vehicles, uh, missiles, small satellite avionics, and especially power systems technologies. And, uh, you know, batteries are really important. SIL makes uh, special kinds of batteries and particularly power system technologies that need to be range safety and space environmentally qualified. Edmund, welcome. All right, Edmund, so let me ask you this question to start us off. Why did you want to book, and I know Tim Anderson helped us out, who's been a guest on the show as well, uh, talking about SpaceX. Um, why did you want to have this conversation? What, what value do you believe that is urgently needed by the space industry that we'll be able to cover here? Well, I wanted to talk about the transition, you know, first of all, the autonomous flight termination systems and space-based range where you have really no ground assets anymore to detract, destroy, and send high-speed telemetry from vehicles, which is a transition. Um, that was actually the epicenter of I started Space Information Labs, and also the the safety aspect of it, like when you come up, you know, have a new launch vehicle, you know, and, you know, all the requirements for range safety that's required for you. It's not just the rocket itself, but it's all the many subsystems that make up the rocket that they're interested in having approvals that the hardware has been tested to certain levels. And, and a lot of the startups, they don't really they don't really fully understand or appreciate what it takes to do that. So it ends up delaying projects by years, hmm. you know, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, primarily still, you know, we design and build flight units, avionics and batteries. And so that's what we do day in and day out. And um, so uh, anyway, that's the primary points I wanted to discuss. Okay. So say I'm a 22 year old engineer, just getting out of college, getting my first job. And I happen to luck into space or defense and, uh, yeah, I don't know anything about a shift <laughs> from <laughs> right, something to autonomous flight termination. Okay. So let's go back and explain those terms or maybe even begin with right. what was going on before, like 20 years ago, let's say, right. If I went to yeah. Vandenberg. Yeah. So when we launched a, v, a rocket to space, you know, we had a lot of ground radars, okay, that mm -hmm. would track the rocket. It would basically um, send a RF pulse out. It would hit the vehicle. It would return, and you would get, uh, you know, exactly where it is 
relative to the center of the Earth and its velocity. Uh, so we had series of ground radars at Vandenberg and also at the Cape Canaveral, we had ground radars. Secondly, flight termination is, is done also with ground assets. You have flight termination sites and they would, um, rain safety officer would press a button. If they looked at the screen of where the rocket was and they also looked if it's roll pitch and yawn, they would mm -hmm. press a button and they would have these ground termination sites or just RF links to the vehicle and terminate the vehicle. So you had radar on the ground, you have flight termination sites on the ground, and we also have telemetry systems on the ground, which collect the telemetry data from the rocket to see what's going on, all the temperatures, the pressures, and that's pretty high speed. Um, so there, there's a shift. Um, actually, my first patent, VBITS, was patent 5739787 in April 1998. It talked about autonomously terminating a vehicle without a man in a loop, hmm. which basically eliminates the need for radar on the ground or, or, or flight terminations, uh, ground systems. And, um, and then the Holy Grail is also to replace the telemetry coming down from the vehicle and go straight to a satellite with that data, which is more, which more, even more difficult. You know, it's actually right now it's um, we're having a K band revolution satellites, and now it's possible to do that also. So it's about efficiency, right? And in the Air Force, you know, when I first pitched it, even to NASA, I went to NASA Wallops and and actually took about six months to get a meeting. And, and then they finally realized, oh yeah, this is a good idea. And actually they started working on it themselves after I left, but <laughs> that's another story. But, you know, initially it was like the discussions were, you know, from, you know, no way, no, that we, we're not doing that. And now 20 years later, uh, four-star generals are saying, no, we are going this way. And by 2025, everyone must transition or, or no later 2030 for military systems. So something was like, hell no, we're not doing this is now hell yes. And because it saves, you know, it's, it's not just the technology side, it's also saves money or operational maintenance to maintain all these ground assets to basically to track and destroy and send high-speed telemetry from vehicles. So there's a transition of technology and GPS was at the epicenter of that. You know, GPS on our phones, now you say go to, navigate to, and you get right to where you need to go. Well, we started implementing that in the late 90s and 2000s on rockets. We proved that we could track without loss of lock. And I did that on, um, first started on, on DOD missiles. And then I did it on Atlas and Delta rocket for tra GPS tracking. And that became a, a way that we don't lose lock with where we're at position-wise. And that's that's at the epicenter of, of autonomous flight termination. You have to know where you're at, and you cannot lose lock. If you lose lock for one second, then autonomous flight termination system won't work, right? So at the epicenter of that is GPS tracking and also inertial navigation systems that are on the launch vehicles. That's what flies yourself to orbit. So those two sensors, if you can rely on them, then you can autonomously terminate a vehicle. And that's what technology that we're working on. So that's a brief summary of, of the transition um, transition that's happening now. Okay. <laughs> when we say flight termination systems, let's describe what that is. Uh, are we talking about, okay, 
boom, <laughs> or it just falls to the ground. Yeah, it's a it's an actual termination where mm -hmm. the person, um, the rain safety officer, determines on a screen it's it's off trajectory, and they also look down at the strip chart recorded at the right, and they see mm -hmm. if the the vehicle's roll pitch and yawing, yeah. and if it's if it's off course and it's rolling and pitching when it shouldn't, then the rain safety officer makes a decision to press a button. It sends a command to the vehicle and there's a call to flight termination receivers that receive that command. And then the, it then goes to the ordinance on the vehicle. There's ordinance that actually splits the vehicle in half and basically stops it from continuing. Mm -hmm. um, or it may rip itself apart before even that happens. If the vehicle's off course and it would be, you know, it, normally the vehicle starts ripping itself apart because if you're going that fast and you start veering off yeah. or rolling, it kind of, the atmosphere takes it out, but they okay. want to make sure to terminate. And it could be coming off the pad too, just five, 10 mm -hmm. seconds after launch and start pitching over, mm -hmm. you know, or start heading in. Like, you know, we launched from Vandenberg. If it comes off the pad and it starts going inland, you know, immediately towards Lompoc, you got to take it down. You got to terminate it mm -hmm. in the first 10 seconds. Right. So, so unless it hit, you know, you don't yeah. want to hit in the city. If it can make orbit the launch vehicle, it can hit any city in the United States or the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you you have to you have to have positive control to terminate the vehicle, and yeah. that's that's rain safety's job. Primarily, job is safety of life. It's first priority: safety of life mm -hmm. of, and and property. They don't want to have hurt life first or property, right? Right. And so see the it, Chinese does Chinese actually they don't care it. so much about yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> right. Knocking down their own villages. Yeah. Um, so is there anything left to recover that's that's useful once the, the flight has been terminated uh, for inspection? Not much. I yeah. mean, there a lot of the times it lands in the ocean, mm. but you know, mm. sometimes they do go off the pad and tilt over and it it doesn't the engines fail or something and then you know mm -hmm. it usually terminates and hits the ground so i mean they go out there in those cases they go out there and try to like get the pieces to mm -hmm. if to try to figure out root cause of yep. why it happened i mean the main thing is you know in launch vehicle providers you have to be collecting this data because it's if you have a good day that's great you make orbit nothing mm -hmm. happens but if you have a bad day and you don't make orbit then all the data from the telemetry systems and the tracking systems and and everything coming down is then that's the only thing you have to under, try to piece together what actually happened. And if you don't get that data, then they may not let you fly, okay, until you find root cause. So it may delay your programs for years, years, if you can't tell them like, well, what happened? So that's a big part of so you have to think through that too, mm -hmm. you know, on when you're a launch vehicle provider. All right. Who who is in a position to uh, request access to to Vandenberg? At what point do you have to be at before you can submit some sort of paperwork or application to be able to fly on the range? Yeah, you have to go through a process. There's a um, there's called a front door to Cape Canaveral, Vandenberg. Um, it's usually the uh, plans and programs office. I'm not sure what it's called today, but it's plans mm -hmm. and programs. And you you go in there and you say, hey, I'm a commercial launch vehicle. And 
they they then started talking to you and then they you know you have to submit a certain documents to them for just to get in the door mm -hmm. to describe your vehicle and the basics of your vehicle and all that and then you get deeper and you get into the rain safety office and that's when you have to start submitting your system designs of your vehicle and what subsystems are there and the requirements there's these documents called Range, Range Commanders Council, RCC 319 is, is a document for all uh, flight termination systems, um, which, which is basically describes how you test flight termination systems. And then you have 32401, which is more of avionics and flight termination systems, not only the flight termination unit, but you also have batteries, flight termination batteries that power the flight termination systems. So there's these guidelines that they give you and you must follow them the way you test. Um, the FAA, by the way, is also, uh, they're adopting through uh, FAA um, guidance, uh, these documents now, they're actually copied rain safety documents. And, and when you go through them now, it used to be like when Elon Musk started, he didn't have all that uh, wasn't that well documented through the FAA. So he kind of got, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say free pass, <laughs> yeah. but he, he did get scrutinized, but now they're writing it down more through the FAA because yeah, at that time the FAA had no commercial launch vehicles. Mm -hmm. Now there's like five or seven that are viable or that are really going to be showing up at, at FAA and also the ranges before the ranges were like, if you worked mostly were DUD, the FAA, because the only offices that had rain safety were the were the offices at Vandenberg and Cape Canaveral and some of the other Department of Defense ranges. Mm -hmm. So the FAA said, well, if you go through them and you did all the testing through them and you show us that, we'll approve you. OK, mm -hmm. but now the FAA offices has their own rain safety and they have their own people looking at this stuff now, which was about mm -hmm. 10 years ago that transition started and now it's fully on where you have the FAA commercial space office that you have to go through and they're 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 writing down more of the procedures and a lot of what the military does they're they kind of took that okay mm. and established their own safety offices okay through them so it, it's been it's actually just in the last five or so years that that transition's happening now fully Okay. I was poking fun at the 22-year-old engineering graduates. Let's poke fun at the 46-year-old operational excellence guy uh, who doesn't know <laughs> nothing about nothing either <laughs> in this area. No. Um, no. So, so what, you know, you've been uh, participating and observing, uh, you know, you, you have worked at these places at Vandenberg and Cape Canaveral. Um, what have you seen as far as the maturity or readiness of folks who come in wanting to fly? What level have they been at and what what kind of a gap do you typically see? Yeah, what happens, um, a lot of the new startup launch vehicle companies, they learn the hard way. But what happens is uh, they may have sub, you know, their rockets, one thing, their engine, their, their, their core structures. But, you know, all the subsystems, you know, rockets made up of batteries, avionics, inertial navigation systems, part of the avionics. You have flight termination systems, either you use standard flight termination or autonomous flight termination. You have S-band downlink that comes down to the ground for telemetry, mainly S-band from the launch vehicle. Mm -hmm. All those subsystems have to be tested 
to either RCC 319 for flight termination systems and batteries for that or 32401. So, and it's very specific of what you have to do. Like you, you have to go through qualification testing. You have to do certain thermal cycles, like, you know, 24 cycle, two hour dwells. You have to have a certain amount of vibration, shock, mill standard EMI, EMC, um, which is, because when you put these boxes, you have radio and, and conductive admissions because you have a lot of boxes on the vehicle. So they has to work in a kind of a nasty environment, EMI environment electromagnetic interference mm -hmm. environment. So they make you test all this stuff. The problem, the thing with small launch vehicle company, they've never launched before and they don't know their environment. They don't even know the environment. They try to model the environment of launch vehicle and they kind of have a notion until they fly once, they try to make measurements. So you have to, what happens is if, if the units that you pick or if you try to do everything yourself, like you try to design your own avionics, your own batteries, your own, and you do all that and you have no heritage or no test data, the range goes, hey, what's your launch vehicle uh, vibration level? What is when your two stages come apart? What's the shock level? And they start asking you, well, have you, has that box been qualified to, to tell, show that, that you, it can work in that environment? And if you didn't, a lot of the ones, a lot of the people don't understand the detail of all this and they, make choices early on and they, and then the rain safety goes, no, your box was only qualified to 10 GRMS and, and your vehicle's at 16. So by the way, you can't fly that box. You're going to have to do a Delta qualification on that box. And that takes up to six months to a year. Mm. And that delays, delays your, your vehicle. So what I see is a lot of times, you know, launch vehicle riders because they have investors and they always promise, oh, I'm launching next year. And then next year comes is next year and next year and next year. And that happened across all the ones that started up mm. from the time they thought they could launch to the first launch is usually like five years from what they originally said, or maybe up to <laughs> 10 in some cases. The venture capitalists listen up. So it's <laughs> an important factor here for yeah, you. Yeah. So huh. yeah, I mean, and, and that's and most people know that now. Mm -hmm. The ones that are there at the table are a little legitimate. Mm -hmm. They know this, but you know, unless you lived it and you have to go there, you really have to think about you know the, the qualification and the in the environment that your that your vehicle's flying, and it's hard because the first one, even in a DoD program. We all is it we we never get the environments even we're building flight hardware and we're trying to deliver this flight hardware and a lot of times it's right to the very end you get the environment because it's hard to predict and, and quantify the environment and we all as even in DoD programs that are well established we don't get the environment till later on hmm. and and so that becomes you know the dynamicis of, for launch vehicles for figuring out the vibration level mm -hmm. and and the thermal thermal environment in specific areas of the vehicle it actually is quite a bit of effort in that regard and it's always mm -hmm. underestimated and no one and that's what delays things okay. because you really haven't tested the hardware to the environment engineering's humbling if if you mm -hmm. have not tested something in the environment 
and not just once, but many times, you always learn things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's why I always tell these launch vehicle providers, you new ones, why don't you just buy some of the hardware in these certain areas from vendors that know how to do this mm-hmm. and, and focus on what you need to do to make your rocket happen, like your engines and every, everything mm-hmm. else. But a lot of them learn lessons, and I don't want to name names, but they've learned hard lessons. You know, they saw Elon do vertical integration and everyone goes, oh, we need to do vertical integration. Well, Elon spent about 10 years getting his first rocket and he failed three times. And he finally got one off, but it took him almost 10 years to get to that first successful launch. And Vandenberg Rain Safety helped him a lot early on, the people at Vandenberg. Hmm. Um, to, um, so it's, um, anyway, it's it's an area that, that, I wanted to talk about that so that some of the startups realize you have to have deep pockets is the bottom line to, to get through all that, get to the first launch. Cause you're going to hit the unexpected. Yes. No matter you're how much hit, engineering. Right. And, and you're also going to, yeah. you're also going to hit sometimes where you got all the greatest hardware and, and someone mm. makes a simple mistake during qualification and, and they, mm. an engineer, a test person, and they have a problem in qual and the unit fails. It may be a hookup issue or some other issue and the unit doesn't pass. And then you're, you're, it delays you six months sometimes. You know, every subsystem has to pass. It has to be either shown that it can work in the environment or have passed. So right. um, anyway. And going back to, you may not understand the environment fully, Hard to get yes. it to pass when you don't understand it. Right. I mean, you've mentioned batteries a couple of times here uh, in the in the uh, termination system, and that uh, right. I know Space Information Labs makes uh, you know battery systems. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Here's a. I have a little demo. Here's a typical okay. battery. This is actually a two amp hour flight termination system battery that we have, and uh, and then also I wanted to show you. Here's here's our this is a 3D printed model. I have uh, aluminum ones back in the back that we're actually going through qual right now. But this is what it looks like. It's a small little box and it has the brains. It has the receivers, GPS receivers and uh, the algorithm in it, which is provided by Rain Safety to make the decision from the sensors to destruct the rocket without any man in the loop at all. So it's all vehicle based on the vehicle. This battery powers the unit. And that battery, that box right there makes the decision to terminate the vehicle. So anyway, batteries, um, what we're, we're a battery manufacturer, flight termination and avionics, but the battery is, um, it has an advanced battery management system in the front, which you can see right here. This is a typical BMS board. And that goes in, you can see the front part, it slips underneath and goes in, but this, um, called an intelligent or smart batteries. Uh, we basically make a turnkey for a user, but if someone walks up with hundred volts, the battery go, nope, you're not charging me with hundred volts. So it has over voltage protection, under voltage, short circuit protection, thermal protection. Because um, lithium batteries are, you know, if you operate them in your environment, it's, they're fine. But if you walk up and make a mistake like a technician charging a battery. This is a 33.6 fully charged battery. And if you put hundred volts on it, you know, like a power supply has hundred volts, this can charge till it blows up, but we don't let that happen. So we have all the smarts in the battery so that a, a technician operator, you know, or 
will not make a mistake. Or if it gets really cold, lithium batteries like in your phone, you don't want to charge them below zero degrees Celsius because they get lithium plating. So we don't allow you to charge in cold, real cold temperatures. So lithium's great, but it, you have to, you know, discharge and charge and is, is it's, the environment has to be a certain environment. Like a lead acid battery, it doesn't have any of that, but it doesn't have the energy density of this too. You know, lead acid battery, you can charge it, you know, because of acid, even your car pretty cold. Right. Um, but now you've been, you've been providing these to clients in the military and civilian yeah. environments for how many years? Yeah, we've been supplying batteries um, since uh, uh, mid 2000s. Hmm. Yeah, so it's been a while. Yeah, like they, they 15, have the heritage. <laughs> 15 plus years, yeah. That's what looking for there. So, okay. and um, yeah, the, the, you have to have flight heritage. You have to have, mm -hmm. you know, put it through testing. Um, that's the big thing is, is to qualify and test it in the environment like mm -hmm. we were talking about. Right. Well, I appreciate being able to, to see this stuff. Um, we've talked about battery management systems. Uh, we've talked about radio interference, signal interference and that. Um, radiation. What about radiation? Radiation yeah. tolerance. Yeah, radiation um, for launch vehicles and missiles, because it's short term, you don't really have too many radiation requirements because you're, you're done in the first five to 10 minutes, you're, the mission's over. It, it lights and it's over. So, but, you know, when you get on a satellite now, you know, in low Earth orbit, um, you get roughly, you know, five to 10K rad, rad 10, five to 10K radiation a year in orbit hmm. level, depending on the orbit for low Earth orbit. So you have to start worrying about, you know, a single vent upset, like a heavy ion or um, galactic, you know, energy coming in um, and hitting a processor. So you have to design the electronics so that it doesn't upset, um, single event upset. Um, and, and that's, you know, there, there is electronics that by design can handle it by design. Uh, those are really, really expensive. You know, like those are like diamond rings. They're, you know, the chip sets like those are 25 to $50,000 a chip that actually can do it by design. There's, a lot of other people work on commercial radiation tolerant where they they use um, air correction, uh, where they actually have triple voting logic and they have air correction and they correct the, when they see errors. And there's different techniques to do that. So anytime you're on a satellite or spacecraft or, or something that's going deep space um, or you know through the Van Allen belts to the moon or out deeper, in space, then you have to worry about radiation, you know, radiation um, to tolerance. Um, the geo, the geosynchronous satellites, you know, they're they're up twenty two thousand miles. They're, and if you're up for like twenty two years, some of the stuff that's up there a long time, they they say, hey, we, everything's got to be designed at three hundred k rad mm. for low Earth orbit. If you're in orbit for five years, people start talking, hey, fifty k rad. You know, ten-year orbit, hundred k rad. So the electronics have to be designed for that level of radiation. So th okay. that's that's when all that comes in. Launch vehicles and missiles, not normally a factor. Mm -hmm. They they okay. do specify um, 
but it, it's not as hard to meet uh, the radiation on launch vehicle missile application. Hmm. All right. Well, I would like to hear, for one, uh, a story or two about well, failure stories <laughs> of trying to get on the rage, or maybe they proceeded a little bit and it stopped dead in the process without naming names, obviously. Uh, not interested in embarrassing anybody, but uh, hearing some details about uh, what actually happened, and, and maybe that'll help people look for that so that they don't stub their toe on this thing and it costs them six months or a year or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can globally say every subsystem, batteries, avionics, electronic safe and arm devices that are on, um, GPS tracking units, autonomous flight termination, which is just now getting started. But every one of the subsystems of launch vehicles, either Department of Defense or commercial, have had uh, issues mm -hmm. with some subsystem on their first launch, or, or even if they've launched multiple times, they've had failures of the, at the subsystem level that they've had to overcome and rectify. It's, it's actually, it's not talked about, but it's, it's almost every time there's something that happens. Yeah, this is something I've noticed, Evan, uh, especially over the last couple of years. So a lot of launch and, and space companies want to hide failure. They want to look perfect uh, as right. if they, they rolled this thing out and there were never any problems, right? And I, yeah. I don't know. I, uh, coming from the manufacturing world at large, I cannot <laughs> look at that with a straight face, right? I'm, right. I'm always like, come on, guys, you know, tell us yeah. the truth. Um, what, what is the downside of showing, um, that you have had failures, you know, is, is it perceived as weakness, do you think, or like, oh, yeah. want, you know, is there some kind of scarlet letter that goes with this or what? Yeah. In the department of defense world, I mean, the stuff we build, it, it's, it's well known. We have failure review boards and, mm -hmm. and when we have a, we have a problem, it's embraced and, and we, we basically go through and find root cause mm -hmm. of why the failure happened. Yeah. And, you know, engineers do their very best and, and, and it's usually some simple thing or, or it could be a component that has a problem. And so it's not looked upon, not favorable in the Department of Defense, but I think in a commercial world, because you have investors, right? Mm -hmm. Either they're promising a certain time to launch and there's a certain time that they're going to spool up and be launching 10 or 15 times a year. And they have some business plan where you have a certain amount of payloads that you're going to launch and you're paying customers. And, mm -hmm. and they get into this thing where you've got to have, you got to launch at this time. And, and, and the investors are looking, it's like, look, are you going to make money and bring money and revenue in? And then you get into this game of, of fabrication of the truth, and hmm. and you things slip to the right, and it's like year after year they show up at a conference and yeah we're launching next year and the next year I hear the same thing we're launching next year and then the next year, and luckily some of them, a lot of, if it was an investor I mean the investors if they're just in the making money the space launch business vehicle business is probably not the best place to make yeah. money at, in my opinion, but who knows, but um, you, they have to be investor truly believes in that, whatever that company's doing and, and be in it for the long, long term. 
if there's an investor, it is not, if you're doing launch vehicles, especially, you know, satellites are a little bit different because it's just a satellite and you can, but if you're in a launch vehicle, you, the investor better be into it long-term mm-hmm. else you're, yeah. they're going to pull out on you and right. it's going to be, and there's a lot of store, there's a lot of things online, all the ones that have, you know, there's bankruptcies that have come out of bankruptcy and, and have restarted and they've learned a few lessons like let's try not to do everything ourselves vertically integrated i still see a lot of them want vertically integrated uh, a lot of companies still push that um, some of the other ones have learned hey what's it's great to be vertically integrated and things we need to do but let's offload some of the other subsystems to people that know what they're doing and just buy it right. purchase it right so there's a there's a trade-off there, but I, I think it's a lot of just investors, investors and, and not the investors not pulling out their money, right? Yeah, this really highlights the value of a Raphael Rokin or a Michael Mealing or another venture capitalist who actually knows the space industry yeah, um, because they worked in it and then go to invest in it because they'll raise an eyebrow at some of these targets and have a little talk, right, with the founders. Right. Uh, whereas the folks who are, uh, as Michael would say, investing my magazine, oh, that looks good. <laughs> you know, I'm going to invest in this launch company. Uh, and I get calls, you know, from, from investors uh, from outside the space industry, and they know a few company names, and that's it. Um, the level right. of knowledge is not high. And so I see how they could be not fooled, but, but enticed into, uh, you know, an idea with fairly unrealistic targets very yeah. aggressive targets right which because they don't know they have no knowledge of uh, or experience of what it's going to take to get this thing done so when right. you say hey guys and i agree with this in full uh, out in in the rest of the world as well beyond space uh right. be clear on what you are excellent at and what you're really good at where the value that you provide is coming from that's the right. apex of your pyramid right and right. then the right. rest of it <clears throat> dole out some money buy the expertise and that will speed you up and it will right. also as you say kind of give you a breather it'll take the weight off of oh my gosh i have to figure out all this stuff now it's true that you will have to tinker with your design probably so that you can integrate their stuff right and that's a little different than designing it yourself i can right. i can see a case for that there but it's slower right yeah. i think it's faster to just buy the expertise plug the thing in um design it so that it plugs in and get on right yeah, have we missed anything that you wanted to mention Edmund? um i think we uh covered most of the you know um most of the areas um you know there's a lot of lessons learned um when you're designing things um when you're building flight units you know we we like i said before the engineers design do real good but you know you you then get to the test it and we've learned years later we find little things that we find that oh wow this you know we didn't truly understand you know after building it and testing it for years you know you have to build a you know in the launch business you have to be able to build things reliably year after year after year and it has to work right but um a lot of things are simple it's like electromechanical interfaces you know you do everything in cab until you build it you don't really see something um uh, and, and then you catch some basic thing on how to assemble something that's not quite perfect or you, you learn something during test 
that you didn't expect. So um, anyway, that's that's a lot of the things that we learn. You know, have it's a lot of things, lessons learned, mm -hmm. and so and I see this over and over. And I tell my engineers just step back and and think about the environment that this thing's in, and you know, simple things like yeah, that wire will break off. You know, the, the whole box twists when you have high shock and vibration. Well, you you need to strap that wire down. You need to tie it to something. It's usually common sense stuff. <laughs> if you just step back for one minute and think thought, think about, put yourself in that environment, and you would you would probably figure out how to build something that would survive it. Right. Okay. Well, I think it's been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, what what kind of person, founder, purchaser would you like to be reaching out to Space Information Labs? And talking to you well any of the a lot of a lot of the um you know the launch commercial launch vehicle companies they're starting to find out about our technology and they are coming to us and they are starting to partner uh we'd like to get out further to partner with others you know with the message like don't do everything yourself you know in certain areas you know okay. partner with people that small other small businesses that are experts in certain areas so uh, we're going to probably start up, you know, Tim and I, Anderson, you know, we're going to start up a seminar series mm. on our batteries and flight termination and, and then, you know, try to go one-on-one -on -one with some of the, some of the new commercial launch vehicle providers and, and see if we can, um, you know, find a way where they'll utilize our technology and, and um, instead of, you know, trying to do everything themselves from ground floor or, you know, and, and there's, there's a handful of companies that compete with, with us. And, and, you know, that's great. You know, there needs to be a supply chain of at least a handful of companies that are providing different subsystems to these people. And we think we're the best of class in our battery technology and our Thomas flight, because we put the rigor and detail and testing in that's required to be successful. But, you know, fair and open competition is good too. Never lose with that either to government or commercially. <laughs> right. All right, Edmund. So our, our message to founders and engineers listening, look, if you want to fulfill your promise, especially if you have the pressure of investors breathing down your neck, right? Yeah. And, and performance right. standards and that kind of thing, you can get to launch an orbit faster by getting these right partners who have the experience on board and yeah. using what they've got and just uh, plugging that into your system. Right. All yep. right. Well, I appreciate you doing this, Evan. Uh, where can people find more about SIL? Yeah, you can um, you can go to our website, www.spaceinformationlabs.com. Um, Tim Anderson, who's R&D project manager and BD manager with me. I'm the CEO of the company. You can always reach out to us. Um, uh, you can reach me. Uh, I just say you do, I'll just give sales at spaceinformationlabs.com. That's the it goes right to me and Tim Anderson. So we'll contact you that way. Or you can call our number too. We have extension here. Just call 805-925-9010. And then you'll just put in, you know, Tim Anderson or Edmund Burke and uh into the phone and, and it'll then dial our number here at work here on our phone. So Great. Well, thanks for sharing your experience with us. Thanks for listening to our discussion. Remember, if you're looking for the right kind of 
uh, our equipment that is range safety uh, and space environmentally qualified. Go check out Space Information Laboratories. And also, if you are looking to get to launch and orbit faster by choosing the right partners with the right experience, consider talking to us at Cold Star Tech. We may not have the items, <laughs> the products, or even the expertise necessarily, but I'll bet you we know who does. And so it's a great place to start. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.